This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... PC Incompetence. Usher Banapal. Sympathy and Emotional Rhythm. And Jackie Gleason, a Liptonist. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans. Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, the... Oh, no, look, look at that. Someone dropped the dice on the floor? What is that? And the <laughs> shag carpet is that horrible... It's it's, it's a, I think it's a factory second because the rug is uneven. And these are store-brand Doritos. What the hell? What the hell, Robin? This is an incompetent Gaming Hut. I won't have it. I won't have it at all. Oh, I have to have it because often in games, we like the fictive uh, creators of the gaming hut must perforce play less than competent characters. And sometimes you do it as part of the zero to hero narrative of your F20s. And sometimes you do it because you're playing hilariously bumbling characters who stumble their way through the adventure and have a glorious good time and learn something about themselves. Robin, uh, is this ever fun, or should we just play Nice Black Agents characters from the jump? Um, I think we should, and my framing of this, what I want to talk about is uh, where competent represents what you are expected to be, you know, the level of skill of the rest of the group, uh, versus your own competence level. So oh, this is the person so plays, uh, you have given me a blind alley to run this whole introduction down. Uh, exactly, a, a competence test. How less than competent of you. On theme. <laughs> of someone. Um, and, yes. uh, <laughs> of someone. Why I oughta. <laughs> so, uh, because of course, if you, it, it is hard to think of a game, uh, where you are actually legit incompetent and fail all the time. I think it's amazingly easy to think of those games, Robin. <laughs> or, or rather, uh, they, they are supposed to, you're supposed to be heroic characters and according to certain rule sets, you are incompetent or as a player, uh, you know, the group of players just makes a bunch of dumb decisions and the, the DM, uh, the dungeon master specifically in this instance, uh, lets them uh, do dumb things where they, you know, the, the, there's a congruence between the incompetence of the players and the, and the, uh, characters or rather the, 
characters are incompetent because of the decisions made by the players. Right. It's like uh, this but, must be one of those Robin Hood moments that got left out of the songs. Yes, exactly. When he shot himself in the head with a crossbow. Yes. Uh, so uh, that is an example of, of uh, you know, there are all sorts of uh, mostly second generation rule sets that really uh, enjoy fumbles. Mm-hmm. Uh, most famous one, of course, is Warhammer uh, Fantasy Roleplay, which is all about how... Uh, exotically you might uh, shoot yourself in the foot and get gangrene and die or uh you know or, or you know it's it's a critical when it happens to the other guy it's a fumble when it happens to you mm. and so there is i guess sort of a gallows humor in playing uh you know the rat catcher in uh, a warhammer fantasy and that is you know obviously baked into the concept with that extremely sort of british sense of uh you know we're all uh, we're all miserable here on this terrible island and we're going to pretend to enjoy it. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's one spirit of, of the thing. And I guess the pleasure of that is the same for the whole group. If you're all deciding, well, we're all just, you know, rat catchers and monkey trainers and, uh, the village idiot and whatever. And we're all just going to go out and get killed by goblins. And that's going to be a, a yuck. Which, which leads, uh, one to the next sort of logical progression of that general thesis. Uh, through the game goblins, which became GURPS goblins, where you are playing those same miserable, immiserated characters, but for laughs, because it's, you're, you're sort of enjoying not just the experience of, uh, pretending everything is fine, but the ironic experience of seeing your characters think they're heroes, but not actually be very good at it. And that leads you towards games that are comedy and uh incompetence is a core part of comedy because that's one of the funniest things in the world is someone who thinks they're great but is super not good at it and uh and that uh, leads to games like not just goblins but also say paranoia where the uh, ability to troubleshoot is literally the least important thing about your troubleshooter uh that they are uh, hilariously hampered by this by the setting by their own uh, ideologies and by the, um, uh, uh, friend computer and by the GM in the final analysis. Right. And the, the liberation of that is, uh, it's a little different than seeing a, a comedy, uh, whether it's, you know, Laurel and Hardy or the death of Stalin, where the stupid people are being destroyed or, or humiliated by their own, uh, fecklessness, fecklessness and incompetence, which might be, light and humorous in the case of uh, Laurel and Hardy, and they might get out of it at the end, or it can be extremely dark and satirical, as in the case of uh, Dark uh, Death of Stalin. That uh, The thing about that, though, is that you are at a remove. You are the person in the audience watching the piano uh, fall on uh, Laurel and Hardy or, uh, you know, watching the uh, horrible... Uh, People in Death of Stalin get screwed over. Those those who do get screwed over. Whereas if you're playing a paranoia character, that has the same level of satirical edge and sort of gallows humor. But you are playing the the character who is repeatedly being destroyed. Now, of course, paranoia itself has sort of a an immunity built in, in that your character comes back like Wiley e. Coyote as a as a different uh, clone. So you're still sort of safe in that way. So uh, if you are playing something where the whole concept is to be a bumbling idiot, there is some, hopefully, uh, provision made by the GM or uh, the rule system, if not both, that uh, sort of protects you from the story-ending consequences of your incompetence. Right. That uh, that it's not a short subject that your characters will return in another hilarious adventure and have a piano dropped on them just as funnily next time. Right. Because, you know, the 
a famous saying, I think it might be Mel Brooks that I'm paraphrasing, is that comedy is a guy slipping on a banana peel. Tragedy is you slipping on a banana peel. Comedy is when you fall into a manhole and die. Tragedy is when I get a hangnail. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, the <laughs> trick with something where the whole intention is for everyone to be incompetent is to be able to continue to maintain that level of distance from your characters. Uh, the Dying Earth does the same thing, of course, where you are... Uh, deliberately engineering the story in such a way that it is fun to get your comeuppance, that you play a horrible person who deliberately uh, does something terrible to get them in trouble, and then you uh, mordantly enjoy uh, the uh, doom and or humiliation that you experience as, as part of that. And so in Dying Earth, you're not so much incompetent as you are a high-status fool, because the same thing, uh, the same dynamic applies to the super-powerful magicians who are the most powerful entities in that world, in the universe, yet they just still continually make fools of themselves and, and mostly use that power to argue over uh, who gets the best hat. And having designed that game in particular, there's a lot of superstructure designed to allow you to enjoy making fools of yourself and each other uh, and to maintain that ironic distance from your characters. So these are all situations where you have some sort of knowledge or buy-in where you break the usual uh, identification with your character in order to then enjoy failure the way that you would enjoy success in a normative uh, role-playing session. And then I think that you can make too much of that difference because plenty of people play their characters not necessarily immersively, but from at least some degree of ironic distance, whether it's so that they can enjoy the surprise of, oh, my God, he made it across that chasm or in many other ways where they can sort of see the whole story and, and get that degree of fun out of it. So playing your character with a little bit of, of, of distance is not necessarily unknown in, in games where you're playing, you know, Luke Skywalker or superheroes or whatever. That's sort of an individual decision. I, I think that the difference is in humor games, in games like this, where you're the humor is specifically on the incompetence of the characters, that ironic distance is almost necessary because imagine being Im immersively Laurel or Hardy. And it, it, you know, as Mel Brooks pointed out up, up thread, as we said back on Usenet, because we're very old. Um, uh, where the hell was I going? Anyway, as Mel Brooks pointed out up thread, um, uh, suddenly you're playing a tragedy, not a comedy, which is great if you're into that, but is unlikely to produce the, the table atmosphere, which is the other aspect of humor games. Right. So if you are someone who hyper identifies with your character and you are, uh, chances are you're someone who strives for your character's success and you have to make an adjustment of uh, identification when you're asked to play an incompetent character. Uh, if you're someone who, uh, which is a rarer situation, who likes to describe from a distance what your character is doing and don't want to speak in-character dialogue or perhaps even talk about your character in the third person, you're already set to go. Uh, this brings us to the thing that I uh, wanted to get toward at the top, which is right. the opposite situation where the assumption is everybody is reasonably competent, although perhaps on a zero to hero arc as in a, a long D&D campaign. And you say, what if I want to play someone who's not that good? And can, uh, when you are asked that in your own games, uh, what is your response? By and large, my instincts, because I have, A, because I have really good players, and B, because my instincts are to let the players hang themselves by whichever rope they brought, rather than, you know, uh, have them uh, pick from the lovely rope that I provided, I'd say, sure, if you want to play a, a, a less competent character, but if if they're new to the game, 
in, in, in this universe where they might be new to the group and they might say, well, I don't know if I can stay up with all these great heroes. I'll just play the sidekick. Then you, you have to sort of talk to them and say, are you sure that you want that? Because unless there is a story reason for your character to take center stage, you're going to be taking center stage less often. You might have less fun than if you showed up and were, oh, look, Robin Hood met Batman. Now they can both fight crime together uh way that uh, I would prefer or I think that the game would prefer that people uh, roll through the adventure. Um, I think that's sort of my approach. Are you uh, a believer that everyone should be uh, within roughly the same power band so that your hammer may fall with um, uh, impunity wherever it listeth? The, the issue is that if you're playing an incompetent character, that is a drag on all of the other characters who then have to protect you and, and pick up the slack for you. And right. the degree to which that matters varies from rule system to And by to incompetent rule here, we mean less competent. Right. Right. Um, so that if you are, uh, you know, if you just deliberately build a, uh, a crummy character in, in GURPS and there's a lot of fighting in the campaign, uh, either you get killed right away and then you have to build another character and then you, the GM has to introduce you and the other players all have to get to know your other character and then, oh, you built another fragile character and now he's dead too and you are grabbing everyone's attention to do something uh, of uh, increasingly marginal interest or, uh, you know, you deliberately build your D and D character to not be that efficient in combat in a game where it's mostly fighting. Well, you are then putting the strain on the GM because they have to adjust the challenge ratings. It's not as much fun for the other players because they can't rely on your character to, uh, uh pull their weight. So the question is, why are you doing this? What, yeah. what, what is especially in a game? I mean, I, I see you doing it in GURPS. Like you're, you're saying, Oh, uh, we need the, the guy's niece to show up as part of the story. I'll just play the guy's niece. And, uh, no, I don't have any combat skills. I have a lot of contacts and maybe a, a, a good, um, uh, bunch of social skills or, or whatever it happens to be. But no, I'm not going to be, I'll, I'll be compared to all you other characters who have hard to kill and, you know, extra DR and whatever else. You know, I'm going to be really at, at, at weak in the, in the combats. And that's just, another tactical challenge, but in a game that is, as you say, mostly combat or is very combat forward, like a superhero game or a traditional, not traditional, a mid-period F20 game, because back in old school D&D, you know, being incompetent at the, at the fighting was half the fun because you ran away from stuff all the time. But in a, a CR-driven D&D where uh, fights of roughly um, uh, the same magnitude happen at roughly the same interval throughout, same with superhero games, then that is a challenge, as you say, because you are ha- hampering, uh, handicapping the, uh, the the core activity of the game. And I would argue that in many games, combat is not the core activity, and the presence of someone's niece there it should provide you a little, you know, uh, kick in the boot to say, no, we, we should not actually not be solving this problem by walking into machine gun fire every damn time. We should think of a way we can uh, use this uh, 13-year-old girl's uh, skills and connections to our advantage and use her as a, as a weapon, not as a, uh, not as a soft target for bad guys. Because in traditional fiction, it's, uh, you know, you have sidekick characters, you have, you know, uh, you have Sam Wise going along with Frodo and Frodo himself is, uh, the whole, his whole point is that he's a, a humble, ordinary person, not a, uh, not a doughty warrior, wizard or doughty warrior or king who would be tempted by the ring. But the circumstances of the plot are controlled by the same person as the one who's creating and directing the characters. And so, uh, the, uh, an author is able to, uh, devise incident in order to, uh, protect 
those characters and put them in situations where their more important qualities, the quality that makes Frodo the most important person in that world at that time, which is, you know, his, his determination and his purity of, of intent, uh, he puts him in obstacles where those are the things that matter. Uh, whereas, uh, in, uh, and role playing games, of course, give, uh, GMs different degrees of control over the way that things uh, come out, but in something that is very, uh, you know, kind of simulationist and where the rules are very determinative, uh, say in RuneQuest, for example, uh, your, uh, your ability to protect a character, uh, in a dangerous situation as a GM and to maintain that literary conceit and keep that character alive is, uh, marginal at best. So it's a serious bummer if your Frodo character, uh, horribly dies. Uh, midway through the story or at the beginning yeah, during of the that story. first fight with the ring wraiths. Yeah. And, uh, it's a, it's a bummer to, uh, everybody. So the, the question to examine is why, why do you want to play a character who's much, uh, weaker? And it's usually by the player says, they say incompetent, not competent in other areas that are equally important in the narrative. Right. The, I think you want to interrogate that and find out why, because very often it is disguised premise rejection, that it is a, a kind of a cop-out in which, well, if my character's incompetent, I don't feel dumb if they get horribly killed and I'm not really responsible for the direction the story takes and I'm going to sort of be kind of a free rider and, uh, and not uh, take my share of the responsibility for uh, driving the story forward or making sure that uh, the uh, goals of the group are, are met. I mean, I, I, I suppose that that could be the case. I mean, the, again, this is perhaps because I've got a, a really alpha group of players that if a, if a player is, is coming into the game in the first place, I assume that the reason they're coming to the game is they want to play the game as played. Um, and because we hash out our games, you have like an amazing grown-ups. group of players, yes, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yes, I think I a do. lot more of our, I think a lot more of our listeners will have, experience playing with someone who uh, likes to swim up up against the stream of everybody else. Yeah. And again, you have to sort of narrow it down to, are you premise rejecting or are you Munchausen by proxying the whole game group? I mean, if your goal is just, I want attention, look at me, look at me, that maybe is the person that either should be GMing or should be told the game is on Tuesday when it's on Wednesday. Um, because that, that's very hard in a social setting to make, to make that always the dynamic if, and make it fun for literally anyone else in the room. Um, if what they're doing is just saying, well, I didn't want to play D and D. I wanted to play a GURPS game where my weak fainting niece would actually be a, a valuable part of the party. That's a conversation that they should have had at the beginning of the, of the game setup, not, midway through the game. It, it's just hard for me to believe that someone who's been playing in a F20 game already and ticking along nicely and their character gets killed by a not yug or something. And then they show up and they're like, Oh, now I'm going to play the, the weak and fragile Hobbit. Uh, and, sh- and serves you guys right for letting my character die. I mean, I, I, I can sort of believe that it would happen out there in the world, but I can't believe that it's a problem that can be solved in a way that isn't just sort of take that player aside and say, stop being a jerk. And it, it, whichever version of that right. you or, like. Or, or why are you doing this? What is your yeah. intent? What's your what intent? is the fun you're looking for? Uh, and uh, can we find a, another way for you to get that fun mm-hmm. other than your uh, letting everybody else down? Right. And so th- the answers are, uh, I want to do zero to hero, in which case mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you either can or can't within the constraints of the 
rule system. But the, but the rest of the party's already at point six two hero. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> you can't start again at zero. It ruins it. The math is wrong. Yeah, or I <laughs> want to be a little weaker in combat so I can be cooler in social situations, which is the easiest to adjust because like, okay, I'll create more social situations. Right. Yeah. Or the other one is just that I actually I get more fun from kind of subtly frustrating everybody else. <laughs> Which again is the guy you should tell the game is on Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, the, the next segment uh, may or may not be on Tuesday, depending on when you're listening to this. And if you're that guy. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft to touch the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The clank of swords, the rattle of chariots, and the groaning of the conquered kings who we have consigned to the kennel tell us that we've entered a particularly ancient and conquering edition of the History Hut. And, uh, uh, Ken, uh, this is a case where, uh, when we were in London in December, where, uh, there was a bit of a, uh, a should have went case in our, uh, decision to go to the Anglo-Saxon exhibit, because we also could have went to the I am Ashurbanipal, King of the World, uh, exhibit at the British Museum about uh, that uh, fabled Assyrian king. Uh, but, uh, Ken, rather than going to that exhibit, you did the next best thing, which is that you ordered the exhibition catalog, yes. which was... And once more, may I thank Britain for f- so comprehensively shooting their currency in the head. Good job, Britain. <laughs> Keep it up. Uh, so, uh, that means that you had a, a beautiful exhibition catalog waiting for you, uh, courtesy of Amazon, when you arrive back yep. and you're able to uh, imagine uh, the splendors of the uh, exhibit that uh, we also could have seen instead of that other excellent exhibit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this uh, takes us uh, way back in Some time. Some days you just want to see Beowulf. That's just the way exactly. the world is. We couldn't lose. You know, it's like, nope. it was like a choice between uh, uh, ice cream or creme brulee. So this takes us all the way back to the uh, 5th century, the 6th century, uh, BC. Uh, 7th century BC. So between, uh, 668 and 627 BC, that of course is the time when the numbers run backwards, 
uh, a king arose in Assyria to assemble the, at that time, biggest empire ever known. So, uh, he started out, he was not that, he was not the heir to the throne. And so unusually, uh, in addition to all of the standard fighting and chariot riding, uh, uh, skills that you uh, uh, pick up as a member of the royal family to an Assyrian king. He also was uh, something of a scholar and uh, is sort of a a, a, a scholar king and uh, maybe even kind of invented the library. So where do we want to start uh, telling his story? I mean, if, if we're telling the story of Ashurbanipal, I mean, you begin with his father, Ezra Hatton, who is uh, a real conquering son of a gun. He's the guy who conquered Egypt for the Assyrian Empire, for example, and who uh, when he saw that, uh, his, uh, bookish son was going to inherit, uh, the throne after the, the real crown prince died, uh, early, he went and conquered a bunch of new people over again, uh, the, uh, Medes and the Persians, especially the, the, uh, tribes out to the east fringe of Assyria. And he said, you are going to accept, uh, Ashurbanipal as your king right now, or I'm going to come back and conquer you some more. And they all signed right there on the dotted tablet. And, uh, sure enough, he, uh, when Ashurbanipal, uh, showed up, he, he still had to conquer them, but he had a, a, a legal case for it, I guess was the thing. But, um, as, as Hodden did everything he possibly could, yeah, uh, so again, he planted that you are about to be conquered idea, which, uh, right, exactly. That, that, that he got in their heads. Good propaganda then and now. Um, and again, Ezra Hodden had gone through the same succession crisis and near fall of the empire when he was, uh, crown prince. So he sort of, looked one step ahead, which is more steps ahead than most ancient monarchs ever managed. So good for Ezra Hodden. And then Ashurbanipal begins. He and his uh, brother are co-kings. Uh, he's the king of Assyria and his brother is the king of Babylon, which since Babylon rebelled against Assyria later on, we assume is because the brother had not looked one step ahead or had said, well, Ezra Hodden was the youngest brother and he got to be king. Maybe I should be king instead of just being king of Babylon. And again, Ashurbanipal or Ezra Hodden, we don't know, set it up so that the titular king of Babylon didn't actually get to be king of Babylon and all the temple money went to Assyria to be given back to Babylon, not uh, as an independent kingship. So he did have a legitimate beef, but on the other hand, only one guy gets to be king of kings. That's why they call it king, not co-king. And then um, uh, Ashurbanipal was, however, uh, so very good at conquering things that uh, he, he, unlike Ezrahaddon, people mostly sat down and shut up uh, once he conquered them. And he was able to, as you say, uh, run the rest of the empire down to his death. Uh, just building a library, getting all the books he possibly could to uh, basically sort of a library of Alexandria type situation uh, before there was even uh, papyrus. It was all on uh, clay tablets. Uh, many of those tablets wound up in Britain through one speaking of conquering stuff. Um, and uh, they also got the, the gigantic set of palace reliefs called the Lion Hunt of Ashurbanipal, which was a huge propagandistic display showing Ashurbanipal sort of killing lions and saying, if I killed this lion, imagine how badly I would kill you pathetic person who thinks of rebelling against Ashurbanipal. So it's a, it's a propaganda thing as well as being a decoration for his palace. And that is the sort of thing. I mean, because 
I mean, you've been into enough of these ancient uh, artifacts in museums that the difference between seeing them even in a lovely book like this catalog or and and in real life is is stark. I mean, the, you can't look at a picture of the Parthenon, uh, the Elgin Marbles, and get a sense of what the Elgin Marbles look like without standing there. There's the giant um, uh, winged uh, bull guardians from the gates of uh, of Persepolis that are now in Chicago. And again, you look at a picture of them, you're like, that's cool. You stand watching that bull guardian stomp on you, uh, fictively. It's a different feel. So I assume that looking at the actual lionhood of Ashford Bonapal would have been pretty neat. So don't write in Jeff Richard. We agree that would have been neat, but yeah. we got to and, see Beowulf. And uh, as you know, is just regular owned by the, uh, British Museum. So I, I exactly. have seen that particular set of things and it is very impressive. And right. It is. Uh, and, uh, the exhibit, of course, goes through it basically dude by dude there on the wall and says, here's who this guy is and here's his little story. And, uh, so one might say, so does this lovely book of it. And again, because I have the book, I can go and do that anytime I want. Uh, so anyway, Escher Bonapal goes all the way down back into Egypt to reconquer it, uh, after Ezra Haddon. Um, he goes after, um, uh, Lydia. So he takes the Assyrian empire farther west than it has ever been taken. And he goes, um, uh, once more back down into, uh, Babylon to put down the rebellion of his brother and out into Elam, which is, uh, modern day, sort of the Iraq Iran border country and, uh, knocks that, uh, out of the park and gets basically people sending, we surrender delegations like from Northern Arabia, places the, uh, Assyrians never went and probably never could have gone. Um, uh, but the, the, he was basically sitting on top of their trade routes. And so if they surrendered to him, then they could be part of the empire and trade with it. And if they didn't surrender to him, good luck getting any wood, Arabia. Right. So, so surrendering was sort of a, a way of forming a trade relationship. So yes. it's like, you know, I surrender here by my olives. Exactly. And, and so, uh, some of the, uh, extra-outing fringes of the empire, we don't know necessarily whether, uh, the letters and, and, and tablets that, that get sent back and forth are, are that kind of disguised trading relationship or whether there was an actual, we will seriously chop off your heads, uh, burn your cities down and, and take your, your people to a whole different, uh, neck of the woods and, and, and farm them out. Um, because that was the big Assyrian trick was when they conquered a place, they would gather up all the, um, uh, uh, all the uh, men, uh, or most of the men, and then they would carry them off uh, in, in sometimes whole populations and they would resettle them on the other end of their empire so that they couldn't rebel because a, they didn't have any friends there. They were totally dependent on the Assyrians to not just be murdered by their neighbors. And then B, they, all their gods had been left back behind in the old city. So they were uh, religiously powerless as well. And one of the, uh, uh, situations that you can sort of see that working out is the famous 10 lost tribes of Israel that when, uh, a different bunch of Assyrians, Tiglath Pileser, I believe, comes through and, and whomps, uh, the kingdom of Israel and they carry the 10 tribes off and dump them somewhere, probably the mountains in northern Iran. They stop being Jews. They, they blow up and dry away. And that sort of concentrates the mind of the guys in Jerusalem who say, we should probably not let that happen because we're not going to stop rebelling given that look, look who we are, look at our ways. <laughs> so that, so that was the, so that was the sort of the great Assyrian contribution to governance was to uh, destroy populations uh, by uh, transporting them to other ends of the empire. Uh, Stalin uh, picked up on that uh, as well. So it's, it's, it's not dead even now. And on a, a more quotidian note, 
also just the uh we're into the period of history where it's like sort of the earliest time where we still have written records thanks to clay tablets being durable of just ordinary everyday communications the equivalent of you know emails and invoices and people complaining about problems in the supply chain and uh, bitching about their neighbors and the Royal Ontario Museum had a Assyrian Sumerian exhibit a few years back and one of the things about seeing these tablets uh, in person is just how small a lot of them are and you look at them with all these little marks in it and it's like oh yeah that's that's like an email that's a bill that's an invoice and uh, the idea of you know just the everyday administration uh, required as soon as you start conquering far-flung territories there's a lot of paperwork or in this case clay work involved right yeah the um the, the sort of the bureaucratic uh, aspect i mean it, it's 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 famous because one one assumes that other cultures created bureaucracies but thanks to clay tablets surviving whereas palm fronds for example don't so right. we don't and, have and knotted ropes or somewhat right, enigmatic yeah. mm-hmm. but, but but for example we know uh just from other countries' histories, mostly, but also from uh, uh, other degrees of like uh, archaeology, uh, that the uh, city-states in India at roughly the same Ashurbanipal era, fifth and sixth century BC, had developed very, very complex economic structures. They developed all kinds of interrelations and trade, and they must have had the same sort of knot of uh, of angry interrelationships that the Mesopotamian city-states did. But because they wrote on palm fronds, we don't have any information about them. So the tendency is to sort of look at Assyria with its you know, literacy uh, uh, in a permanent medium and say, well, look, Assyria is this shining light against the dark ages of the rest of the world. But they, they just wrote on things that that um, uh, that, that stayed around. The uh, Plenty of other places were uh, ticking along just fine without being ruled by Ashurbanipal. So right. we also have a tendency, I think, A, because Ashurbanipal very much meant us to have that tendency to think of um, the, 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 these empires as, well, what are you going to do? They're, they're primitive screwheads. That's the best they could do is have a conquer. But if you look at other contemporaneous cultures to the extent that we can, there was still plenty of war, cruelty and brutality, but they managed to do it without, you know, the sort of massive, uh, uh, religio military imperialism that the Assyrians pioneered. So the Assyrians, not cool, even though their library way cool. Right. Because Ashurbanipal was famous for, being, by the standards of the day, a benevolent ruler to his own people, uh, given yeah. that many of his other people who lived in his empire were not his own people, but were subjugated, but uh, being extraordinarily cruel uh, to his enemies, which, of course, is part of this whole, oh, why don't you just go ahead and surrender before we get there? It's yeah, more the, convenient the, the, that way, and we might buy so much all. more convenient for everyone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, uh, do we know enough about uh, this period to set a, a role-playing game there and, and is it a, a a fun era to have adventures or uh, is it one of those cases where you're either uh, the king or you're nothing um i think that you can definitely have adventures and the way that it would be f- the i think that the fun is to play one of those sort of tribes the, uh, the arabs from the northern uh, stretch of arabia or someone from the fringes because uh, Assyria is writing letters back and forth to the Greek city-states on the f- coasts of Lydia. So if Ashurbanipal had taken it into his head to keep marching 
uh, West, if the Lydians hadn't said no mas, no mas, he would have like shown up at, at Miletus and burned it down with Thales right in it. And, you know, there goes Greek science and possibly democracy if the Assyrians go and uh, take out the Ionian city states. So it, it, it's sort of, I think that's the fun thing. Or maybe, uh, you know, the, Ju- the Judeans from, from Jerusalem who are a vassal kingdom in the sense that their king said no mas, but not in the sense that they had their, you know, their temple knocked over. Um, so, so one of these guys who sort of has a legal right to be in the Assyrian empire, but can recognize, oh, this is badness. These, uh, the, these Assyrian gods are up to no good. They're, they're all, uh, human sacrifice-y, invade-y, um, uh, deport-y sort of gods and we don't like them. And so you're sort of engaging in the, in the evil of the Assyrian empire, but without being complicit in it the way you would be if you were playing, we're the king's eyes of Assyria and we're here to put out supernatural rebellion which just happens to be justified in every possible sense. I think that's a more fun way to look at it. And, and you can still take advantage of this vast trade network and this vast network of, of people who are just doing their jobs and keeping society going while you're fighting demons, but without um, uh, having to decide, hmm, do I want to play an Assyrian? Is that really where I want to be um, uh, playing history's legitimate bad guys? Uh, well, on, the, on that question, well, we will throw <laughs> that... Uh open to you, dear listeners, and head through this commercial uh, to uh, see what olives we might purchase and or conquer on the other side. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Protect our vast podcast empire alongside such Patreon backers as... Jeremy French. Kevin J. Maroney. Noel Warford. Dave Choate. And Matt Farr. The chattering of selectric keys and the gurgling of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar welcome us once more to the hut where we learn how to write good. Uh, look at that. I figured out how to grammatically enter this hut. So it obviously <laughs> must be... Well, maybe be... we should close this hut down permanently now that you've... 
come up with an intro. So it must be all about word. Oh no, it's about sympathy and emotional rhythm. I've ruined it already. Uh, it's a hut where we are talking not about the craft necessarily of, of word choice and placement, but about character placement and how do you build a character, I guess, such that you, the reader, give a rat's ass what happens to them and how do you carry them through a story without uh, uh, ruining that, right? Is that sort of where we're going? Exactly. Um, so you often hear, for example, in, in book and film reviews or uh, people discussion, uh, discussions online, uh, questions of character sympathy and you may also, as a, a writer, uh, feel that you want to push back th- about that a bit in that uh, sometimes you see uh, very obvious attempts to evoke uh, sympathy for a character which kind of fall flat or are not that interesting or right. you wish to explore the uh, the interesting, uh, conflicted, dark part of the human personality rather than to think to yourself, well, you know, am I being told to make my character a, a sweet and virtuous Pollyanna because I'm looking around at all the interesting narratives that I care about and there are uh, people who I... Uh, who, who by any objective measure are, are kind of terrible, whether it's Tony Soprano or Walter White or, uh, or, uh, Macbeth, shall we say. So. It's a biggie guy at random. Yeah. So, uh, and sometimes when you, uh, disagree with a, uh, a review that you think is dumb, you will hear things that infuriate you like, I just didn't care about this, the protagonist or I didn't want to spend time with these people. Um, and, uh, in a way, all of these things are subjective and, uh, you can't assume that every member of your audience is going to uh, relate to uh, all of your characters, particularly your viewpoint characters, just as you can't expect everyone you meet to relate to you. N- none of us who are uh, specific are universally uh, liked, and so there is an element of this that is subjective. So why does sympathy matter at all? Why do we uh, care whether the viewer uh, not necessarily likes, but rather uh, identifies and feels for the viewpoint character, and that's because of the entrancing effect of emotional rhythm, uh, as described in the the beat analysis system that I talk about in my books, beating the story, or in Hamlet's hit points. And the uh, to review the the thesis there is that uh, narratives become interesting when there is an unpredictable but regular variation between moments of hope and moments of fear, so that you hope the character succeeds in uh, redeeming herself by reconciling with her uh, mother, uh, but in the same scene you fear that she's going to make things worse. Or you, uh, on a more physical level, you uh, hope that Indiana Jones is uh, going to get away from the rolling rock rather than being uh, crushed by it. And the essential element in either of those things is you have to care enough about the protagonist to be invested in uh, whether they uh, w- reconcile with their mother or uh, avoid being flattened uh, with a rock. Because if you think about stories that you disengage with, if there's no ability to tell what it is that you want to happen in a scene, whether that's a good thing that happens to the character, as in you know a conventional protagonist, or uh, something uh, that uh, stimulates your dark urges, as with a, an anti-hero, you have to care enough about the characters in order to know what hope is or what fear is. And so that's, you know, to boil it down very simply, why you want to make your audience care in some way or another or identify uh, to some extent uh, with 
your viewpoint characters in a scene because otherwise you're showing them something that has no emotional relevance to them and the connection between hope and fear uh, dissipates and they're just watching a bunch of stuff happen that uh, has no particular emotional gravity to, for them. Right. Now, now I forget which uh, particular hack uh, screenwriting theorist it was that said, pet a dog, kick a dog. And then so the very first scene, your, your hero is, is petting a dog and is nice to animals. And in the very first scene, your villain kicks a dog and is mean to animals. And that's how you sort of immediately establish that, well, I like him and I don't like him moment in a story. And of course, once you recognize that it's hacky advice, you see it being done in hacky screenplays and television shows uh, forever. Um, it, it, let's talk about Indiana Jones because when we see Raiders open up, we don't know anything about it, I mean, it, his face is on the poster, so we assume he's our hero, but we see Harrison Ford and he looks great because he's Harrison Ford and he's wearing a cool hat, but he doesn't really do anything. And in fact, he's kind of a cocky jerk in that first. Oh, this is where Forrestal uh, checked out, you know, oh, look, that that poor bastard got killed by a trap. Uh, it's a shame, but I'm going to keep going. And he's not being particularly nice to his uh, his uh, partners uh, for good reason because they turn out to be jerks. But the identification with an Indiana Jones character is very much a well. I'd like to wear a cool hat. I want a gold idol. It's not a emotional identification really at all, except for in the sense that the score does some work of telling you he's a good guy and he's you know Harrison Ford, so he's super handsome, and we know that that means they're a good guy in the movies. So. Is there an emotional sympathy that is created other than he's got a nice hat and be ashamed if he's crushed by a rock? Um, it's an intuitive identification, which is often stronger than a something that you can pinpoint and notice, right? So um, as you allude to, there's an entire book of screenwriting advice called Save the Cat, uh, mm-hmm. which tells you not only that you should establish sympathy by having your hero do something altruistic early on, like Save a Cat, uh, that even tells you like what page number to do it on. Uh, but in reality, as you point out, the, the viewer can see through that and go, because in actual fact, does someone who saves a lot of cats, is that person likable to me? Uh, as much as I like cats, the notion that someone is a, a big time cat saver, it's just as likely to uh, evoke a sort of, uh, oh, well, you're kind of shown off, or you're resentful, or I don't care that much about cats. But often having a character who has, you know, sort of, uh, as you suggest, a set of iconic uh, tropes about them, the subliminal suggestions that we identify with them, and then showing them doing something is actually, uh, as long as they're not doing something horrible, um, and even sometimes when they are doing something horrible, like setting up uh, you know, a, a sniper perch to conduct an assassination, we instinctively identify with people who are doing things and become interested in uh, what they're doing, uh, it introduces a question mark of to what end are they doing it? What's the outcome of this? And then we also uh, hope that they succeed. So if you imagine the be- beginning of a movie in which uh, the assassin character who goes on to become the villain is temporarily our viewpoint character in the scene, uh, even though there may be all sorts of outward signifiers that this person is going to do something bad when they accidentally drop the scope and, you know, nearly alert the uh, security guard below to their presence, we will sort of instinctively <gasps> Yeah, right. because we are yeah. invested in a process going on so that the actual delivery of, of identification and sympathy is probably much more complex than simply uh, showing someone uh, being nice to an animal. Now, the converse is certainly true that if you see them, if you see somebody kick a dog, 
you just know they're uh, horrible and you know that they're the antagonist. You're rooting for them to drop that scope no matter how assassiny they are. And you do, you also develop a hope or fear around that. You develop an anti-sympathy in which as soon as you see somebody kick a dog, you, you hope that they are going to be punished uh, eventually for that. And that's almost invariably why the a writer... Uh, depicts that scene in order to you, you and I youth. both saw the favorite and uh, uh you are right now uh, since I just said the favorite you are yes. identifying the moment at which uh, for me Lanthimos completely set up that ending yes <laughs> we won't talk much more about that in detail but that's uh and that's far far into the story and it's, that's yeah the most- it's 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 very I mean that's the the save a cat thing done really really well yes <laughs> So, so there's no trick so hacky that a great artist can't make it into genius again. But the way that you establish, but, but if you're not a great genius, yeah, <laughs> you might don't wanna, do it. Try, yeah, try, you, you try might step come one from first. a different direction. Yeah, and so the notion of of competence as a sympathy establisher is 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 one, of course, that you know you look at a, and we're talking movies all the time. We should maybe be talking about uh, uh, the written word as well. But when you see a character like in Peeping Tom, you see the character and he draws you in by you're following his life and you're curious about what he is, and then you realize not that far into the movie that he's a horrible horror person, but you're still super invested in seeing him succeed. Where does, how does that sympathy work? If you're writing a novel, let's say about a guy who is um, a serial killer or whatever, and you begin with the establishment of him doing something clever uh, to thwart the cops. And you're like, well, I do like thwarting. And then you realize, oh no, he's a very bad man. Is there a way to keep that sympathy? Is it just a matter now you're on the roller coaster, you're stuck to it? Or is there a point where you nope out in the middle when you realize, oh, this guy's not an anti-hero. We're reading, we're doing a straight up villain perspective book. Uh, well, voice has a lot to do with it in fiction that if you mm-hmm. are, uh, writing from that character's point of view and showing their perspective, of course, they will be self-justifying. Uh, they will, uh, describe what they're doing from their own point of view. They will have their, uh, why they're doing it and, uh, eventually you start to turn on them and, and, uh, uh, want to see them destroyed, like, uh, you know, uh, Patrick ba- Bateman in, uh, American Psycho, uh, right. where you, you realize, uh, you know, that their voice is very oppressive and horrible and, and then you're reading in order to, uh, see Get them fail and see them destroyed. Right, yeah. Um, and, uh, that there's that, uh, but even with someone very satirical, once there are things in, in motion and a process, as long as there's something where you know what you do or don't want to have happen, that is identification, if not uh, sympathy. And yeah, at that point, it hardly matters. Like if you're one of the people who, and there were a lot of them who read American Psycho and, and similar novels as how-to guides, as opposed to as cautionary tales, um, they've, it still works for those people because they're like, Oh, you're still, inv- they're still invested in the emotional roller coaster. They're just on the other side of it. So their hope is your fear and vice versa. Exactly. And I can certainly, so, I can certainly imagine someone who is um, a nicer person than me reading, say, really good anti-hero books like the Flashman novels, um, where I'm generally rooting for Flashman, even though he's uh, self-described as a horrible, horrible human being, but, uh, he's funny. And so I like that about him. Right. And but he I can see other people. So you're not, he, he does get his comeuppance, but he then gets. Feeling unjust reward at the end of his comeuppance, which will lead to more comeuppance. But it's a, I mean, Flashman is, is sort of like, if I was to pick one set of books to d- illustrate the difficulty and the reward of sympathy and emotional rhythm, um, I would maybe pick Flashman because your sympathies should never be with the main character, but they always kind of are. But the rhythm is so 
reliable and, and as you said, unpredictable, but it's very predictable in Flashman, but it's always super fascinating the way that it works because like you say, the wheel of, of hubris is immediately followed by the wheel of comeuppance. No sooner does he get his Victoria cross than he's shipped off to some other godforsaken hellhole. And, and you know, the, the wheel is always turning with, with, with that guy. Right. And, it's so beautifully constructed. Do you, do you think that, I mean, Flashman's obviously a master class because most masterpieces turn out to be master classes, but are there lessons you can take from the engaging anti-hero, uh, or the hopefully engaging anti-hero that, that, that work uh, well? Uh, another example in very much the same mold is, is Google the Clutter from, uh, right, Jack yeah. Dance. And mm-hmm. you'll notice that what is happening there is that Flashman or Kugel are always dealing with other people who are at least as horrible, if not worse, than they are. Right, so that, yeah. Uh, Flashman's dealing see... with Otto von Bismarck. He's not dealing with Florence Nightingale. I- exactly. You know, he's he's not. Or he uh, is, but she shoots him down and leaves the book early. Exactly. <laughs> right. That the he is amoral, but the the uh, the the universe is not amoral. So you are still uh, you're able to vicariously enjoy uh, the uh, the anti-hero character, whether it's a gangster in a gangster film or Flashman, and enjoy the anti-socialness of it, knowing that you're going to get uh, sort of a square up reel at the end where you're. Uh, you're let off the hook by their comeuppance and, uh, and, uh, the thing that you know has to happen at the end happens. And, uh, but, you know, along the way, uh, you identified, uh, with the dark parts of that character and wanted to see, you know, another example, of course, is, uh, you know, there are tons of different narratives where the anti-hero is, uh, tempted to terrible acts of violence, uh, that, uh, we kind of want to see happen, uh, particularly, and again, often the, the targets of that violence are, you know, they kicked a dog in Act One, mm-hmm. uh, yep. and then after the uh, the violence goes, then you see that it goes too far or whatever, and that it sort of pulls you back from that vicarious uh, experience of a sort of an anti-morality back uh, into a, a centered moral universe. But at all points, you may want sort of opposite things at the same time. You may have an ambivalent scene where you uh, both hope and fear the same outcome, but both of those things are engagement. And the danger is if you are not identifying with anything that's happening in the scene, if the evil characters that you're meant to identify with are just charmless and stupid, and you don't care what happens to them, or you go, well, they're all going to get wiped out in the end, and I'm not particularly engaged in seeing exactly how, that's when you lose uh, that uh, engagement that makes the emotional uh, rhythm work. And I think on, on that note, it's time for us to change up the uh, rhythm of this podcast by dipping into a commercial and seeing what lies on the other side. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World. 
and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The screech of the alien big cat out on the moor and the low muttering of the gray and Nordic aliens as they confer over kombucha tell us that we're once more in that most eerie and ill-defined of huts, the paranormalist of huts, and that, of course, is the Elliptony hut. And this time around, Patreon backer Matthew Perez says... So it appears that Jackie Gleason had an interest in the paranormal. His 1,700-volume collection was donated to the University of Miami after his death. Anything special or cool in the collection? And so I guess for our younger viewers, we maybe need to briefly need to set up who is Jackie review Gleason. who Jackie Gleason was. If you and younger meaning, if you did not grow up in the era when 50s television was still routinely serialized on uh or syndicated on on tv so uh jackie gleason is most famous for the uh, sitcom the honeymooners uh, which you uh, younger people probably still know in that it was the inspiration for the flintstones <laughs> the younger people right now are flintstones flintstones, flintstones is that a manga that, yeah i think that well now we're on to the the dark reboot of the flintstones so i'm sure we are uh, we are there's a comic strip that is actually kind of brilliant um but the uh, to get back on track, uh, he sort of, uh, was a very influential figure in the early sitcom with the honeymooners, and it is your classic sort of mold maker of the, uh, buffoonish blowhard, uh, uh, husband and the wife who continually puts him in, uh, his place. And, uh, uh, he is, he plays Ralph Cramden, a bus driver, also notable in that, uh, it's a, a staunchly working class setting and, uh, uh, Art Carney plays his sort of doofusy uh, sidekick, and uh, the uh, wives of both characters are the ones who are uh, actually really smart. Uh, one of the f- uh, famous uh, taglines that uh, resonates less well today is uh, he would <laughs> he would threaten his wife. He would go to the moon, Alice. He would threaten a puncher, but of course she's the one who's really in control and has power. Yes. And even at that time, uh, it is he is depicted as the. Uh, exemplar of stupid masculinity right he 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 was he was always threatening and never able to follow through and so he'd say one of these days alice right pow right in the kisser and it'd be like on the one hand you're threatening to beat your wife but on the other hand you're never going to do it because she runs you right he's never going to do it and the fact that he's resorting it to it then is his moment of greatest weakness uh that grew out of his uh, variety show, the Jackie Gleason show, which started in 49 and existed in various incarnations from until 52 and then again from 62 to 70. And, uh, on the variety show, Ralph Cramden was one of the characters. So the honeymooners started as a, a skit yeah. and then grew into, uh, a full fledged, uh, classic sitcom, which, uh, uh, shot 39 episodes between 55 and 56. And, uh, later on, on, he, uh, he did a number of classic film roles. He was, uh, Minnesota Fats in, in The Hustler. In The Hustler. And, uh, he was also the, uh, the sheriff antagonist figure in the early Smokey and the Bandit, uh, movies. He did all his own pool shots in The Hustler. Not that that's relevant to this discussion, but it's cool. Yeah. He was, he was definitely an old school, uh, guy, a, a heavy drinker in, in the days when that uh, meant something. And he also had a sideline. As a, a band conductor, he wrote the, the theme music to his shows, and he uh, released a lot of 
uh, lounge records uh, under his name, uh, which are all sort of romantic mood music uh, from the uh, 50s and uh, and early 60s. But we're here to talk about his elliptonic uh, interests. Uh, so you can find uh, on Library Things, some intrepid soul has listed uh, 1,400 or so of his 1,700 books. And Ken, that uh, allows us to scroll through the titles. And uh, mostly it looked to me like they were, you know, a collection of basic commercial elliptony and Fortiana with a sideline in uh, in showbiz books. I mean, that's it, it, it's a strong collection. Uh, there isn't an awful lot that is super special. Um, a couple of the books that he had, I think, were bigger deals when he was alive and interested in them than they are now. There's a book that I actually covet that I've seen in, in uh, libraries myself and have read part of uh, called Ghostology by a guy named William Danmar. And he has sort of an electromagnetic theory about ghosts and it connects to atmospheric inversion layers. He believes ghosts are real, by the way. They're actually the souls of the dead, but they obey electromagnetic laws because real things do. So um, I, I'm very, I'm very interested in that book. And it's not a book that you see a, a lot of people have, but again, Gleason would have been alive when that book was a bestseller and he was making money in the twenties. There's no reason he wouldn't have bought it if he was interested in ghosts, which we know he was. So, so, uh, ghostology would be a surprising book now if you found out that, I don't know, Emma Stone owned it, but to have an, an old school guy like Gleason own it, it just means that he was collecting before a lot of people were collecting. So that's the sort of books that we're talking about. You're talking about a guy who, who knows a great deal about it, um, and, and is into it and is a, a good buyer. Um, and so he, you know, picks up first editions of things like, um, uh, the sacred mushroom by John Allegro, which sort of began the whole entheology movement. Um, and he was, he was woke and he, and he knew that that book existed and he went out and he got it, but it, he's not hunting down like rare copies of, of John D or something. He's got, um, uh, generally commercially published books and again, pretty standard works in the field, even if they might not have been as standard when he picked them up. He's, he's just a good collector. He, he knows his stuff. I mean, I, I look at his, at his collection. I own of the books of his that are, um, uh, magic books or, or elliptonic works. Um, I probably own two thirds of them, maybe something like that. I didn't quite run the whole collection because it's impossible, but, um, uh, there, there's a lot of overlap between, uh, Gleason and myself, and there'd be even more overlap if I had just been born in 1916 instead of 1965. So that's just, um, I mean, he, he's a strong collector, but he's not, um, uh, pursuing, um, uh, Necronomicons and whatnot. Right. Uh, that we know of. That we know of. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Cause there's, there's 1,700 uh, books donated and uh, 1,400 on the uh, library thing list. And I sort of infer that uh, the University of Miami was interested in his collection because he was Jackie Gleason. That, uh, right, yeah. Uh, they were, uh, you know, if you go to donate your book collection to a, a library, uh, depending on how famous game designers are by the time that <laughs> happens, uh, they might or might not be uh, interested in picking up the They the probably thing. won't call it the Kenneth Hyde collection. Right. Uh, there won't, there might not be a special exhibit mm-hmm. unless, you know, someone crowdfunds it. Now, uh, his elliptonic interests were, uh, certainly publicly known. He was a, uh, fixture on, uh, a, a radio show in the fifties, uh, hosted by a guy named John Nebel, who 
I gather, is sort of a precursor to Art Bell. Yeah, he's a John Nebel is specifically in the ufology community, sort of sort of a legend. He was a very he was sort of the believer, but he wasn't just bananas about it. He was he he was definitely on the side of there are aliens. His nickname was Long John Nebel. And he had a gigantic following of, of listeners who would follow him. And I think he knew that it was good copy. And he definitely was a strong UFO believer. But he wasn't a crazy person like your Alex Jones type people right. or uh, or even your Art Bell. I think that he was more like a a, a gifted radio de- uh, radio guy who discovered that there was this audience for things. And that because he's discovering at the same time that the rest of America is, he goes into the believer camp, not into the don't be a crazy person. It's Venus and Swamp Gas. Right. So he's a precursor to those other figures in the, in the sense that the next version is always worse. So right. Go yeah. From John Nebel to Art Bell to uh, Alex Jones and uh, Gleason also palled around uh, with other ufological figures. So uh, they were they hung out at his place and they talked to UFOs. And that is the basis of a, a legend which uh, holds that another of his buddies, Richard Nixon, while he was in office, allegedly uh, took Jackie Gleason uh, one night after a, a drunken golf game down to the uh, military base where uh, kept frozen in coolers were the bodies of, uh, of various alien beings. And uh, like many uh, legends of uh, ufology, is uh, uh, too entertaining to check. Right. And again... um uh why not? <laughs> as long as you're believing that the government is keeping aliens in a hangar somewhere, why not add Jackie Gleason? That's my question. You're already choosing your beliefs on what is um, uh, aesthetically fun, not anything else. Add Jackie Gleason. He can only make things better. And it, it makes a certain, there is a certain amount of uh, sort of documentary realism to the, uh, you know, that if there were aliens in a cooler, there probably would be some night where one of the, the nuttier presidents uh, took someone uh, unexpected to look at <laughs> yeah. him. I mean, again, I mean, you're, 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 it's, it's, it seems weird, but, you know, obviously, you're a Hollywood star. You pal around with politicians. That happens. I mean, uh, Obama had tons of, of Hollywood buddies. Uh, Trump used to, and may again, who can say? Yeah. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, was a Hollywood star. The, the fact that, that Gleason and Nixon were pals is true. That's, that's the good yeah. part. Yeah. And, and so the notion that, um, it's especially, I mean, if, if you, if, if the same story were told, not about Jackie Gleason, but about the head of the American, you know, sugar company, first of all, no one would tell it a second time because it's super boring just hearing it come out of my mouth, but it, it would not be, it would seem more believable just because it's a different rich guy who was friends with the president, but president's got friends and because they're president, those friends are generally rich and famous people. So the the Gleason and UFOs is is uh you know it would be no different than if we found out that you know uh, President Obama and, and Leo DiCaprio went down to Area 51 and he showed him you know wh- where the Tesla death rays all were or or whatever right I mean who knows what DiCaprio is going to be into uh, Gleason also bought or built had commissioned a house in Peekskill New York that uh, looks like a UFO <laughs> that's a, that's a little that's a little extra <laughs> yeah. Uh, it yeah. had to be uh, built in in segments and then flown into this sort of hillside location and uh, and, and assembled on site. And it's uh, 50 feet in diameter. And uh, th- that's another case of intersecting uh, interests because uh, as a purveyor of uh, space age bachelor pad um, music, this was uh, would have been a very swanky uh, sort of uh, uh, futuristic uh, building in the in the 50s where uh, uh, he could. Uh, 
he, he wasn't a bachelor very often in his life. He had a lot of tumultuous marriages, but, uh, you know, that certainly hits the sort of, uh, conjunction between space age style and belief in uh, UFOs and, uh, apparently went on the market uh, just this August and, uh, the asking price was $12 million. I don't know whether anyone bought Jackie Gleason's UFO house and, and what, what it finally went for if they did, but, uh, uh, if if not, folks, you can look it up and uh, and possibly uh, right put it in a bid. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, uh, the 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 sort of you can tell how real estate focused the the magazine is because do they show the top view where it looks like a normal house or do they show the side view where it looks like a crazy flying saucer? <laughs> so uh, the question, of course, is uh, how do we incorporate this? Uh, you know, was Jackie Gleason a, 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 a Mr. Verity from the Ordo Veritatis? Right. Is he uh, someone uh, giving your, uh, you know, if you're a Fall of Delta Green character and you uh, go to, to talk to Jackie Gleason, what uh, what clue does he have for you? You know, does does he in fact have a copy of the Necronomicon that he's not going to donate to the University of Miami? That's a, a, a sort of a, a fun detail uh, that you can... Uh, uh, work in, or you can ask yourself the question, uh, you know, what, what is the real thing that happened that the Nixon and aliens on ice story is the cover for? I think, I think one of the fun, I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff that you can do with it. I mean, you can, I feel like unless the GM, because trust me, it's going to be the GM, um, can do a killer Jackie Gleason impression, having him be your Mr. Verity is a, it's a little much, but B it, it's a hard thing to keep doing. Um, but I think having him show up in a one-off where maybe your character has like been given some kind of LSD because it's fall of Delta green times and you're all psychedelic and you're having woozy hallucinations and you're like, I, I think Jackie Gleason was there with the president. <laughs> it's very weird. And, um, uh, that, and it can be sort of a, an element of surreality because we, we're, again, we're playing in the 21st century, not the 1960s. But, um, the notion that Jackie Gleason just shows up in a UFO story is surreal to us. And, and maybe lean into that. And so you have, um, uh, a, a scene where you've got a, you know, you, you, you're trying to get this majestic scientist to defect and, um, you know, that he's, uh, married into society money and they're going to a party in a, a, in upstate New York. You drive up. Oh, there's the UFO house. He's at Jackie Gleason's house for the party. And either Jackie Gleason is just a, a stooge and he's just there because the guy's a scientist and he's, and he's friends with the wife or he's hitting on the wife or whatever. Or Jackie Gleason's part of a majestic, you know, bailout program. He's, you know, somehow part of it and they showed him some UFO stuff. And so he does their bidding. So it's like, yeah, lure these stupid investigators up to your house. And uh, then everyone leaves the party and the real majestic guys can show up and then take him out or uh, give him the, the, you know, you know, nothing go away speech. Uh, I think, I think Jackie Gleason, he can, he can even deliver the, you know, nothing go away speech where they're, you know, at the, at, at the, uh, performance or whatever. And then all the lights go down, the spotlight hits them. Jackie Gleason turns, looks at them, says, you're meddling in things you don't understand back off. And then the lights come back off and he continues with the bit and you're like, uh, did that just happen? Did Jackie Gleason just threaten us? And that I think is, is what his role is because it's what we are seeing him as now, uh, is sort of a weirdly out of place element in UFOs and ghosts. Um, even though of course there's nothing weird about a 60s celebrity being, you know, having UFOs and ghosts on the mind. Uh, yeah, you can sort of look stylistically to the way that James Elroy drops in real figures from the entertainment world into his sordid crime uh, novels and, uh, that, that, uh, lends it both a sense of reality and sort of a sense of, you know, that there's the surface 
thing that people know, which is the celebrity of Jackie Gleason. And then there's some weird sordid thing going on uh, underneath. Uh, Elroy is, is not at all shy about uh, slandering dead celebrities. And uh, no, whether, he is not. <laughs> whether, whether you want to do that or not is uh, with Jackie Gleason. I think uh, depends on uh, on uh, how much you like Ralph Crampton, I guess. Right. And I guess the other sort of connection there is he's, as you say, buddies with Long John Nebel. Long John Nebel's wife at one time was Candy Jones, who is known to a subset of our audience as the alleged target of CIA mind control conspiracies. And it became a giant deal where Candy Jones is the skeleton key to every bad deed the CIA and or gray aliens have carried out in the last 150 years. Um, there's sort of a Candy Jones-centric conspiracy so if you're moving into one of those mind control areas, you can go via Candy Jones to Long John Neville and back around. And that's how Jackie Gleason can show up. He can show up as a figure on the fringe of this. And maybe you have like, well, we don't want Jackie Gleason to get injured during this uh, firefight. We won't shoot the MK Ultra guy right here. Um, and, and so he can be a sort of a, not a symbol of surreality, but like a symbol of normalcy where it's like, well, we can't let this horrible craziness go out and infect America's uh, funny man, Jackie Gleason. And he, he represents sort of normal, blind 50s, 60s normality uh, against the unreal, crazy people world that you're that you're part of. Right. Because if a beloved celebrity is killed in weird circumstances, that's going to uh, rip the mask off and everything's going right. to get out. It's a bad scene, man. Uh, well, on that note, uh, <laughs> we all want to protect Jackie Gleason, so we'd better uh, stop sending aliens his way by talking about it. So uh, we'll be back next week, folks, with another exciting edition of this here podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Paul Green Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast in Cramden's Mystery Appetizer alongside such Patreon backers as... Nico Irick-Sinnon. Trung Boy. Wayne Rossi. Ariel Celeste. And Derek Heimforth. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Nod knowingly if you're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>